So I don't know if, if we have said in class about May 7th. Um, um, we haven't. Okay, but so on, on May 7th, the shepherds are going to be in all of the different classrooms and um, kind of talk about some of their new structuring as they've added a, a, a bunch of guys and um, some things like that. So, so because of that, we're, we're condensing two lessons into one today. So we're going to go through those four gifts that are on the board. It would have been two, but we're doing four right. today. Um, no offense, but I'm going to skip over here. <laughs> I'd like to be able to see yeah. that behind me. Okay, hospitality. I want to start out to tell you what hospitality is not, or what it's not all about. Um, it's not all about what the magazines tell us. It's not all about my paper stay here. It's not all about glamorous table settings or beautiful platters of food, which this speaks my language. I love this. This is what I do. So as I was studying and discovered this is really not what it's all about, I was a little sad. Um, but um, this is important. I think this is important, but it's not what it's all about. So let's define it. It is the spirit-given ability to make strangers feel welcome through various means, such as reception, food, and lodging. I also found another definition um, making your home a sanctuary for those God sends your way. Good morning. Um, and what I, what I discovered is a lot of the Old Testament meaning of hospitality um, had more to do with welcoming the stranger and the alien among, the alien among, alien among us. But the New Testament had a little more to do with food, which I was glad to hear. Um, it was a little more about the communal meal. Um, it had a lot of symbolic significance. Um, when they shared food, it was kind of sharing life with each other, um, and it created a bond of fellowship. So a little bit different, but I think both are equally equally important. Um, two scriptures I wanted to share is 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10, and I have it, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude, covers over a multitude of sins. I love that verse. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So just two points out of those verses were to offer hospitality and not grumble about it. Um, and that word various where it says um, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms, that word in Greek means variegated or multicolored. So I thought that was a really... Um, that, that's just a good picture, that grace comes from God in various multicolored, variegated forms. Um, and we're to offer that to each other. Okay, Romans 12, 13 is the next one. Um, if somebody gets there before me, go ahead and read that. Or if you have it already, go ahead and read that. It's very short. Does anybody have it? Okay. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Right. Very short, concise. One of the um, translations I found, it read this way. Look for people who need help and welcome them into your home. It's just very plain and simple. Um, okay, I have some quotes. Um, Laura Burkhart and I, who's a dear friend of mine here, well, you've heard me talk about the Titus II program here at Outer Creek um, for women. We talked about that, I think, two weeks ago. 
But um, we did a Titus II event on hospitality several months ago. And um, she had several quotes for everyone um, on just little pieces of paper for them to take home. And a couple that I really like that I wanted to share with you all. The first one is um, the heart of hospitality is when people leave your home, they should feel better about themselves, not better about you. And that was really convicting for me because when I have people in my home, I love to do a table setting and flowers. That's just what I love to do. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily to make them feel better about me, but it just made me stop and think about, about that. And then this one's kind of a funny, but um, it did make me laugh. Um, hospitality is making your guests feel at home even if you wish they were. So I guess I kind of think about family members sometimes that we have at our home that we're kind of sometimes ready for them to leave. I don't know if any of you have people like that in your life. But um, all right, I'm going to read something that I found about hospitality. I think this is a really good summary. And then I've got a little analogy to share with you. If Christians would practice true hospitality, we could play a significant part in changing our corner of the world. After all, we are living miracles and have much to share. The bottom line is that God can use people like you and me to touch lives. It doesn't matter if we rent or own a house or an apartment. Our homes are an extension of ourselves. When we practice hospitality, we have the opportunity to touch lives in an intimate, personal way. Be bold. God has not only given you the roof over your head, but also will give you the love and wisdom needed to open your home to others. With a little planning and preparation and a good measure of prayer, you can be prepared to share your home with friends, neighbors, and even the strangers God may send your way. Um, I think when early on in our marriage, we had this small home. It was a nice home, but it didn't lend itself to large groups, which kept me from having people over. Um, and sure, there are limitations to that, but it was a little intimidating for me. So looking back, I wish I had done a better job about sharing my home then. But anyway, we just need to be bold in that in practicing hospitality. Okay, um, a couple years ago, I think I've told you all before, I do food at our church camp every summer, and this will be my tenth year doing that. Um, typically, the kids, when it's meal time, they come through two lines, and they're, they're served cafeteria style. Um, but a couple years ago, our theme lent itself to doing more of a family table meal the last night of camp. So you go, you can picture 300 people in the mess hall with all this food on the table. But we did it. Um, Nicole Henley, who was the youth minister at the time, asked me to share something, a devotional thought, about the table. She didn't really give me any other guidelines except that. So I was like, okay. But when you ask me to talk about food, my wheels kind of start turning. So it was amazing how this story kind of came together for me. Um, I immediately started thinking about my grandmother, who played a huge role in my life. Um, she loved to cook. She practiced hospitality. Um, that was just a really important part of her life. And I spent a lot of time with her when I was little. So these memories started coming back into my mind. and and what I started thinking of was um, her spending all day cooking. She cooked every night of the week. Um, my brother and I would be outside. She would yell out the door to come to the table. That was her words, to come to the table for supper, as she called it, or maybe it was dinner, I don't remember. But um, one of my favorite memories of her was when she would have people over 
for dinner. Um, she planned what seemed like weeks ahead of time. Um, her guest list, she'd have it all written down. I would see her little spiral notebook sitting next to her chair. She would have her guest list written out and then she would have her menu written out and then she would start her grocery list, I don't know, at least a week beforehand. Um, very detailed, you know, grocery list. And um, then, you know, she would go to the store, um, she would start preparing the food, you know, whatever she could pre prepare ahead of time. Um, then probably, let's say people were coming on Saturday, probably Wednesday or Thursday, she'd start setting the table. And this was a tiny little dining room but she would get out her finest of everything. She would get out her finest china, her finest crystal, all of her silver, and it would be, you know, the knife, the teaspoon, the dessert fork, the salad fork, the dinner, you know, you get the picture. I mean, the table, this tiny little table is just full of all this glassware and centerpieces and stuff. So, um, her guests would arrive, you know, she was so hospitable, um, take their coat and their purse and she'd have a special place for them. And she also had a special place for you to sit. You didn't get to pick your seat, which I never really understood that. But um, she had specific places she wanted her guests to sit. And the only thing that I could figure was she did not want anyone to sit in her seat. She had, she had her own special place to sit, and it was very close to the kitchen. Um, and my grandfather, I believe, sat at the other end. So head, foot of the table, foot, I don't know which one you would want to call her seat. but. Um, <coughs> But what this allowed her to do was she would get up from her seat and she didn't have space to set out a huge big buffet of food where people could come in. Um, and I think she just liked to do it this way too, but she would have all this food um, in the oven staying warm and you know, on the stovetop, on her counter, just covered, kept, kept warm for everybody. So she would start the process of passing the bowls around and she usually had something on the table also, which she called a relish tray. Have you all ever heard that term before? Um, it was pickles and olives and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, people passed that around. But then she would pass the fried chicken around. Then she would pass the pot roast around. So, you know, it's two entrees. Then she would begin the side dishes. And it wasn't one or two, it was usually four or five. And it was all things that she had gone to the farmer's market, cut the corn off the cob, shelled the peas. I mean, this was a very laborious task, but she loved it. She started passing the side dishes around, cornbread, sweet tea, rolls, um, and then those are usually at least two desserts. All right, so people are, are filling up their plates, and I just, I remember hearing them say, because I was there a lot, and I would help her, um, people would say, I don't, if you keep passing food around, we are not gonna have room for anything else on our plate. And they had run out of room on their plate by the time the third side dish went around. Went around. So as this, these memories are coming back into, into my mind, I started making this correlation to what God did for us through Jesus. And I've told you all before, I think when I taught on teaching, that I love how Jesus taught through parables. And I usually do that with my children too. I'll take some mundane something that happened during the day and I'll try to make a spiritual application to it. Sometimes it's a stretch, but I still like to do that. Um, but anyway, as these memories are coming back, I thought this is what God did for us. He planned long ago, weeks and weeks and weeks ago, um, for his plan to bring us back to him. 
And um, that plan was to send his finest. He got out his finest through Jesus, sent Jesus. And um, he's still on his throne. He's still at the head of the table. But he sent Jesus to serve. That's why my grandmother sat at that, that spot, so she could easily serve people. Um, Jesus showed us how to serve each other. And as I thought about all that food being passed around, I thought about all the blessings we get from God through his son. And if we keep our eyes open and become aware and look for them, so many blessings in our life, our plates will become overflowing. Um, so it's just sweet for me when I think about my grandmother, to, that's what it brings to mind, is um, what God did for us through Jesus. So, all right, I don't think I have, oh, there's my grandmother. That was quite shortly before she passed away. Okay, I didn't list the ministries. That's on the help. So, giving? Okay. Y'all have comments, stop. But um, we're trying, I guess we're trying to move through. But I don't want someone not to speak up if they have something to share. So, well, for giving, you know, I would, at the beginning of the course, we did that um, assessment, kind of the survey, so folks could see kind of where their spiritual gifts are. And I got a copy of that. And so, and it's not just people in our class, like that was open to the whole church. So we probably had, I don't know, 150 or so people take that survey. Maybe people. And so I get an email. So I didn't read every single one by any means, but a lot of them I would just kind of take a quick glance. Um, and I would say the gifts, um, are there 12 gifts? 16. 16 gifts. I would say those gifts were distributed fairly randomly different mm -hmm. people with one exception and I think giving was consistently in the bottom for, for almost everybody it, it was it was for me it was and um, that was just one thing I noticed as I was kind of so it's not empirical data but as I was kind of looking at everybody I noticed giving was pretty low on everybody and so I don't know if that means maybe the assessment didn't ask very good questions or maybe it's in, maybe it's just a hard gift to inhabit or maybe it's because we live in Williamson County, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the country, or, you know, I, I don't know what the reason is for that, but it is interesting that giving is a little bit more of a challenge for most people, I think. So, um, so we'll talk about that, and if you've got, maybe if you've got a theory about that, I'd love to hear it, or if you've got things to share, uh, definitely uh, would welcome that. So, uh, giving, somewhat self-explanatory, but it's the God-given ability to contribute money, and resources to the work of the Lord uh, with cheerfulness and generosity. Um, when I meet with uh, new members, uh, we, we do a new member class, and so as everyone enters into Otter Creek, um, I talk about four different things, like what, what does it mean to be a fully engaged, fully active member at Otter Creek? And so we talk about um, gathering, kind of what the gathering rhythm is of the church when they get together with Buddy, um, uh, grouping, um, so making sure you're in community, opening your lives to others, practicing hospitality, uh, giving, that's this one, and uh, also growing, making sure you're using your spiritual gifts, which is what this whole class was about. But, um, and I always kind of make a disclaimer in there, because I was like, you know, I, I get that this is the, the newcomer's class, and I don't want people to feel like, hey, welcome to Otter Creek, here's where you write your check, you know, or here's how you give money. So I always kind of say, I, I don't want you to feel that weird vibe, but I also um, don't feel ashamed in saying, 
you know, we are a church with real people and real ministries and real um, expenses. We have bills to pay. I mean, we got to keep the lights on, things like that. And then beyond just the boring utilities of this physical space, there are real things that we're trying to do in Nashville and around the world and um, just, just all over the place. So, of course, all those things take real dollars. So um, certainly it is beneficial for the body to be participating in that together and for everyone to be uh, bearing some responsibility in the work of the church as far as financially speaking. Um, so um, if for, for folks that do have uh, the gift of giving, they typically like to manage their finances in a way so that they can donate more. So um, it's not just um, coming to the conclusion that, well, at the end of the month, there's not much money left over, so I can't, I can't give. Like people with this gift are kind of constantly on this journey of figuring out how can I, not just will I have any money to give, but how can I set up my financials so that I do have money to give? How can I build that in? How can I budget? Where can I sacrifice? Where can I cut? Um, so that I can, because because they, they really do find joy in it. Um, and so for some of us, it's hard to imagine like, well, why is that? You know? <laughs> Why, why would that bring you joy? But some people really experience joy in that. And I think all of us have experienced from time to time, whether it's writing a check or uh, just being there for someone. I mean, we, we can all relate to, to the, the feeling of blessing you get when you're able to be generous with others. Um, so the, these folks also like to meet tangible needs so that spiritual growth in others can develop. And uh, they enjoy supporting the work of ministry with sacrificial gifts in order to advance the work of the church. So uh, they, you know, they, they see the big picture and can see how the dollars or the time or whatever they're contributing, they see how that is being leveraged for the sake of the kingdom. And so that, that's, um, that brings them joy. Um, so uh, just real, uh, realistically, kind of boots on the ground, uh, these are specific ways that uh, giving can show up in a local church, whether that's support for missionaries or... Um, Establishing trust accounts or foundations to provide uh, ongoing resources for ministry. Casey, isn't that, do you, is that what you do a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, share testimonies of how God has provided for your needs. So that's a great way of uh, kind of flipping that coin and saying, okay, well, I'm not writing a check right now, but let me tell you how God has provided for me. Or let me tell you how the body of believers in a local church has been able to rally together and, and meet my needs. Um, so just being open and transparent with that is, is helpful. And then just uh, assisting with fundraising projects too. So let's look at a couple of texts here. Uh, if you'll go to Luke 21. This, this is kind of the, uh, the, the uh, typical text we go to. This is the, the widow and her two mites. Somebody have that first four verses of Luke 21? As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. 
So a great story. There's there's lots of, I mean, you can really dig into these short four verses pretty deeply and look at this from a lot of perspectives. But just in brief, um, you know, I think the take the main takeaway here is it's not the size of the gift, it's the condition of the heart that matters. So it's the the position from where you are giving that um, that benefits the kingdom. So so it's not limited to just those who have the wealth. Everyone can participate in this regardless of, of uh, uh, financial position. Okay, and then another one other exciting verse from Leviticus. I mean, anytime you're reading out of Leviticus, you know, it's exciting. good stuff. Um, I'll read a, um, a little bit here. We're not going to read the first six chapters of Leviticus. As much as you might want to, we're not going to do it. So, sorry. Um, okay, uh, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of the meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. And then the rest of this chapter and the following five chapters all talk about different offerings. There's the grain offering and the atonement offering and um, the, the burnt offering and all these different um, offerings that you can bring to the temple. And they all serve different purposes. Some um, are, are to um, atone. Uh, some are, I think some are, are really just, um, it, it talks about how the priest is able to to take the, the portion, and so the priest is able to live off of some of these offerings and things like that. So, um, all, all six of these chapters are talking about uh, different kinds of offerings. What I think is neat is that it's not only um, to get right with God, so it's not only to like punch your ticket to make sure that you're on God's team. Part of, uh, you know, the whole theme of Leviticus is to try to teach people how to live in a better way. God is saying, yeah, th this is a better way to live. So whether that's cleaning the mold in your house, because there's a chapter in Leviticus about that, um, I think God is inviting his people into a better and fuller experience of life. And part of that is the ability to, to be generous and live with an, with an open hand instead of a closed hand. Um, so those are some things to think about with, with giving. Um, I'd love to hear your comments. Do you think of giving more as a spiritual discipline or as a spiritual gift? Or what are your thoughts on giving? Yeah. Um, I think it's more of a discipline just because the way I was raised was it was expected. Like you got an allowance and you were expected to give this much right. to the church every, every right. week. So it's just kind of how I was raised and that was the example that my parents set for me. So that's it's always been, I'm not like planning for it, but you always give the money and you just figure out what you need to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm kind of like that too. Um, and I've heard um, some people say, um, you know, because we do have different ways to, to give financially to the church. I've heard some people say, well, I just really have the discipline of putting the money in the plate every week. And I, I, I never put money in the plate. For me, the discipline is when I set up my budget at the beginning of each month, when I close one month and start the next month, I make sure that that, that is built in and then it's just an automatic draft. So it's not the writing of the check or putting the money in the plate for me, but it's when I sit down at the computer and plan out, okay, how is this month gonna go? That's where the discipline is built in for me. Okay. 
I've taken the same way to read certain disciplines, but I kind of question myself at times because it's such a discipline. I I wonder if I forget the joy, yeah. you know, yeah. because it's just I pay it every month like I pay every bill. Yeah, and so I kind of give myself a little grief for that. I'm not sure if that justifies it, but I don't know as I feel the joy that was intended for me to feel. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can tag on that. I feel, I feel like tithing is something that is very much a discipline. Uh, but actually, when you define giving, there was an attitude about it. And I do think that that takes a little bit of a spiritual gift mentality where people are really do enjoy that aspect of giving that up to do something else. And that makes them happy. And they're looking for opportunities to give as much as they can rather than, well, i gotta do, I got to set this aside and make sure I do that. And that, that, that takes courage and steel sometimes to do that, especially if things are hard. But when you're actively looking for how can I sell this to give to this or give my resources to someone else for so they can make something happen. And, and I've met those people and it really is something that I'm just like, I do not have that in my woven into my being to think the way they think mm -hmm. is a mentality. Right. Um, I can sit here and make a point to budget and, and, and do and, and do giving but not right. have that kind of essence about them. Well, this is the way I want to love people is by, you know, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that mindset. Yeah. Um, no. I, one of the challenges I have is going beyond that, you know, you tithe and then offering it back and that, and I think sometimes it's a challenge um, to, to stretch, you know, and try to go further because, you know, it's all his. But, um, but to be able to um, then realize that And those needs are, are certainly, I mean, I, we were kind of having this context, this conversation in the context of church, but obviously being able to give beyond church coffers is, is, is the spiritual discipline or, or, it's, or it's a spiritual gift. So, you know, having that generous heart, looking for ways to give, having that mindset, I think is what is the gift that we're, that we're called. Okay, well, along those lines, we'll also talk a little bit about health. Yeah, that's a good follow-up. Um, Giving, I think we think more about monetarily, but helps, I think, is giving more of our, our time, perhaps. Um, let's define it. The spirit-given ability to assist others in practical and necessary tasks which frees up, supports, and meets the needs of others. Um, that 1 Corinthians 12 passage, where it lists a whole bunch of different gifts, um, I read that this passage in verse 28 is the only place this form of the word helps is used in the New Testament, which I found interesting. Um, but I found Greek very interesting also here lately, <laughs> looking at all these words, but I don't know how to say it, but it looks like analepsis um, literally means rendering practical aid and support. So that's 1228 is the only place that that word is used that way. Um, so I think the definition is a bit obscure as far as defining helps because I think it has a broad range of applications. There's not like one specific little thing you can point to. So some characteristics of people with this gift. Um, they usually aren't the stars of the show. They are those people that are behind the scenes helping however they can. And you all probably know people like that. Um, they recognize the practical and tangible things that need to be done and they enjoy doing them. It's not a mundane task for them to be washing dishes or stacking chairs or, or whatever. They enjoy doing that. 
Um, I think about, if you all have heard, I think Josh may have preached on this a while back, but our forms of worship are our head, our hearts, and our hands. Well, these are the hands people. Um, They associate spiritual value with practical service. So, some examples. You all probably have some examples in your life of people that are great at this and have this gift. Um, I thought, first of Ed Rucker, over here, he um, has been an elder here for over 30-something years and has recently just stepped down. But you all may know this about Ed. Every Sunday and Wednesday night also, I believe, he goes somewhere, I'm not sure, in Nashville and picks up a lot of people to come to church. He's done this for years and years and years. I mean, I also thought of Sandy Collins, who um, I think she still washes all the room in the end linens. So she quietly comes in on Wednesday morning, gathers them all up, bring makes sure, make sure they're back by Tuesday night. She does a whole lot of other things too. And then, of course, I've got to brag a little bit. I thought of my own son. Um, he's my oldest here. Um, Conrad Boyd, he's the son of Chad and Sarah Boyd. Chad and Sarah elders here, some of our dear friends. But um, this picture was taken almost three summers ago. He and I went on a mission trip to Mexico, and the kids kind of got to pick what they, what area they wanted to serve in. So he and Conrad picked to scrape a stucco, well, no, it was concrete, home that abandoned women, abused women lived in in a very remote part of Mexico. Um, and painted it. That's what they did all week. Um, He's my one who, before he could drive, we would show up here to church to pick him up after a youth event, and we'd be sitting there. Where's Caleb? Where's Caleb? We'd wait 20 or 30 minutes in the car for him. Where is he? So he'd get to the car, and like, buddy, where have you been? Oh, I've been cleaning out the bus. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, what are you going to say to that? But he, he is such his form of worship is such a hands form of worship. He just, he loves being behind the scenes and serving that way. Um, so it makes a mom proud. So I found this little acronym that I thought really defines help. It's having enough loving people serving. H-E-L-P-S. Which I think very clearly defines that, that gift. I did want to list some ministries because this is such a, has such a broad range of applications. There's a lot of opportunities here for helps. So, have I been in your way the whole time? Can you see? Okay. Um, ambassadors, ambassadors. Um, we're going to hear from Laura, I guess, this coming Sunday? A week, maybe? Soon. Sort of. Okay. Soon. We don't know when, I guess. Um, but that's what I consider the hospitality ministry here. It's the door greeters, the bulletin, pastor outers, and all those people. Children's ministry, all kinds of opportunities to help in that ministry um, to support Dawn and um, Melanie and the new new minister that will be coming. Consignment sale, huge job. Over 200 volunteers are needed. Of course, Mills on Wheels, the food ministry, which you all heard Annie Harvey talk about. Of course, missions. Wayne Reed is always needing people just to come do stuff there. Um, read, read to the kids. Um, be a, a buddy with them at lunch. Um, do yard work, paint, whatever. There's always opportunities. So... There's lots of opportunities here for that gift. All right. Y'all have any people in your life that you consider a hands help kind of person? My son gets it from his dad. So, anybody? They just seem like the kind of people that, if they came into a church context, they may be tempted to think, boy, 
my contribution doesn't mean much. But, uh, you know, like the people that prepare communion, we'd be sunk if we didn't have somebody prepare communion every week. And odds are good, most of us probably don't even know who it is. You know, it's those kind of things. Actually, I meant to mention Brian Leeper because he's one of our shepherds here also. I don't know how many years he's prepared communion, but he bakes the bread, bread that's right. weekly. And he's back there in that little room every single week dumping the empty trays and refilling them. I think he comes in on Friday or Saturday to do that. He's been doing that a long time. It seems like a lot of these roles are uh, people or, or things that get done that you kind of don't notice, like you're saying in the background, yeah. until yeah. something happens and it doesn't get exactly. done. Exactly. Like if we were to show up one Sunday morning and, oh, what happened when nobody did communion? Then we noticed that. Or, you know, but, or people that work in the AV booth. Like, yeah. not as long here. as that goes smoothly, you don't even think about it. Yeah. But as soon as it starts messing up, you're like, ah, oh, yeah. Exactly. The lack of communion did happen when I was growing up, and I'll never forget it. We showed a little church, and four men at the front, they took the lids off the bread. This is when we did it up front, you know, we didn't do it from behind. So it was quite obvious, and there was like nothing in the trays, and they all looked at each other. <laughs> and it was so awkward, because back then, you weren't too loose about, you know, like, oh, we'll do it this afternoon. But one of the elders in the audience got up, and I don't know where he went, but he found a lemon meringue pie. He scooped all the lemon out of the middle, and he brought the crust, and that's what we had. That is a great It was funny. Story. Yes, yes, yes. We had to send somebody off. That was good. We had to send somebody out to the grocery store and sing a few more songs one time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Funny. I will never forget the lemon meringue pie communion. <laughs> I would have asked to include the lemon meringue. It's <laughs> <laughs> a chicken sauce, maybe. Yeah, that's right. All right, Deanna's got to step out, do some helping. <laughs> so, but I'm gonna stick around a little while. Okay, well, we're gonna look at one more uh, gift, which is mercy. Uh, which is the God-given ability to feel feel deeply for those in physical, spiritual, or emotional need, and then demonstrate actions to meet those needs. And um, and so I want to do a couple things. I want to show a quick little two or three minute video, and then I want to read a a uh, text, one of my favorite texts. Um, so I'm going to go quickly through this. Alleviate the source of pain and suffering. People concern themselves with issues that cause harm to or oppress people, address the needs of the lonely, neglected, forgotten. Uh, these people are empathetic, they're caring, responsive, kind, compassionate, sensitive. So you kind of have the picture of this person in your head. Maybe, maybe this person is you, but um, it's the person that's always thinking of other and wants to uh, bring along people who are, who are maybe, in maybe in a uh, position of suffering. So I want to show a quick uh, video about empathy um, because so many times I think it's hard to be empathetic with others. It's hard to kind of show that concern. Even if you feel that on the inside, sometimes you don't know what to say or what to do. And so this is a, a helpful uh, video, I think, when you're feeling empathetic about how to respond to others. So what is empathy? And why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's a, it, very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, 
the ability to take the perspective of another person or or recognize their perspective as their truth staying out of judgment not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us <laughs> recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that empathy is feeling with people and to me i would think that empathy is this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say i'm stuck it's dark i'm overwhelmed and then we look and we say hey i'm down i know what it's like down here and you're not alone sympathy is ooh, it's bad uh-huh uh no you want a sandwich uh, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. <laughs> I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time, because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put this little lining around it. So, I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Yeah, so, you know, empathetic response never starts with at least. That's a good little tool to have in your toolbox. And then just, um, you know, that kind of last image of just being present with someone in their suffering is sometimes the best thing you can do. You don't have to necessarily solve the problem for them. Um, you don't have to silver line it. Just, just be present with them. Just uh, help bear their suffering. That's usually the best way to show mercy. Um, okay, let's finish with uh, this text from 2 Chronicles 28. Uh, this is a great story. Um, I think this is the story that Jesus is leaning on when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, if you put, we don't have time to do this now, but if you take the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and you take this story and put them side by side, there's a, a, just a ton of parallels. Same, same words are being used. Um, even the, ge the same geography is at play here. So I'm pretty sure that you know Jesus is remembering this story and reinterpreting it into a parable uh, for, for the people that he's teaching. But this is a great story. We'll I'll just read it, and then we'll be done. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the, the, the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices at burned incense and the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. 
Therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hands of the king of Aram. The, the Arameans defeated him and took uh, many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hands of the king of Israel, who inflicted heavy casualties on him. And one day, Pekah, son of Ramaliah, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah because Judah had uh, forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Zechari, an Ephraimite warrior, killed uh, Messiah, the, the king's son. Uh, Az Azrikam, the officer in charge of the palace, and Elkanah, second to the king. The men of Israel took captive from their fellow Israelites who were from Judah 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. They also took a great deal of plunder, uh, which they carried back to Samaria. Okay, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with mercy? Here, here we go. This is the part that uh, you'll see parallels to, to uh, the Good Samaritan. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there, and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. He said to them, Because the Lord, the, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. But are you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. And then some of the leaders in Ephraim confronted those who are arriving from the war. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? For our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. And they didn't stop there. They didn't just say, okay, we'll let you go. Here's your money back. The men designated by name took the prisoners, and, and from the plunder, they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals. They gave them food and drink and healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys, just like the Good Samaritan did. So they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. So again, we have these people from Samaria um, coming down. In this case, they're the ones that inflict the, the damage and the pain, but ultimately they offer healing uh, balm and food and drink and clothes. Um, and so that's what it is to have your heart pricked, even for someone you were just doing battle with on the battlefield, um, to, to be able to feel that um, empathy and be able to show mercy. Uh, that, that's what this gift Thanks for hanging in. And uh, we'll see you next week. Next week.